I've been given the lovely topic of uh, carrying on our series on Luke and looking at the the woes that Jesus gives to the Pharisees and the lawyers. Yeah, I could have had a nice, easy one, though, Jesus is a good shepherd, or Jesus loves you sermon. Um, I get the one where he's being a bit offensive and a bit in your face, so I don't mind, that's fine. Um, I'm going to call this morning, Do You See It? Because I think that's what we want, what Jesus is really getting at in this, these three small sections. Um, he's already said this to his um, his disciples. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it. And to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Thank you, Jimmy. Okay. Blessed are the eyes that saw, didn't see that, I must admit. Um, okay. Blessed are all those that see clearly what God's got put for them. Now, this isn't the passage I was asked to preach on, but it's a good introduction. Here's where we start then. Okay, I'll read from the NIV. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to turn to it. This is Luke chapter 11 and verses 29 all the way through to 54. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to it, except for the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. That's the first little part. Um, one of four. Jesus, as we said, he is so much better. He is greater than any of the other prophets had been. And yet the people who listened to him weren't receiving his message. They weren't repenting. Now, as I was preparing for this, I had a real problem. Like, what is the sign of Jonah? You can understand the sign of healing someone's like, deafness. You can understand the sign of raising someone from the dead. But how can you have the sign of a person, the sign of Jonah? Well, in order to understand the sign of Jonah, we probably need to understand what he was and what he did and what he was like. So many of you will know the story. Jonah, asked by God, go off to Nineveh to proclaim that God is going to pass judgment on you unless you repent. And Jonah absolutely, completely obediently got on a boat and turned the other way and went to Tarshish. He was very reluctant. He didn't want to go there. They were scary people in Nineveh. Okay, you know, the rest of the story gets on the boat. The boat hits the storm. Everyone wakes him up. Why aren't you praying to your God? He throws him overboard. He gets swallowed by a big fish or a whale. And then gets puked up, very nice and graphic. Three days later, on the shore, Nineveh, and then he goes off and completes his mission. He goes to preach to the Ninevites and gets really, really, really annoyed when they do what he asks them to. Okay. He goes, he preaches a message, and therefore they repent. Maybe that's the sign of Jonah. Maybe him preaching a message from God is the sign. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's preaching a message of repentance. He's asking people to turn from the ways they were before. Maybe that's it. Or maybe it's also this idea that he was inside this very dark, probably very smelly tomb, you might put it, for three days. I mean, here's Jonah, having been vomited up, looking a little bit bedraggled. Maybe that's the sign. Well, the hints in the text... 
Jesus says, no further sign than that of Jonah will be given. It's not that Jesus already shown this sign. It's not that Jonah was the only sign. Because I'll be honest, I've, if I've just seen Jesus cast demons out of people, like he did in the start of chapter 11, and if I've seen him raise widows' sons from the dead, or widows' daughters from the dead, as he did previously, him going, oh yeah, that's your sign, would feel a bit cheap. Maybe he's foreshadowing something a bit more that's going to be coming. Maybe he's the one that's going to be spending three days essentially dead, actually dead, and then come back to life. Maybe that will be the sign for this generation. And when they see that, maybe this generation will turn around. We compare Jonah to Jesus. Jonah, reluctant. Jesus, obedient. Jonah, resentful. Jesus, joyful. Jonah in the fish. Jesus actually dead. And then the big one here. Jonah successful in his mission for getting people to repent. But Jesus not. That seems wrong. We just said that this Jesus is greater. How can this Jesus be greater if the people aren't turning to him? He goes on in the next little section. No one lights a lamp and puts it in place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Jesus sounds here like he's passing the buck. It's not the fact that I'm not bright enough or great enough for you, but maybe it's your eyes aren't working properly. You don't see what's being shown before you, not because it's not there, but because you're not looking in the right kind of way. There was um, a challenge when I saw this verse. A challenge that made me readdress some of the ways I've thought about light. I'm a physics teacher. I like... Okay, yeah. I'm a geek. Get over it. Okay. I like thinking about processes and they have a journey and we have this whole lesson and something the kids might be able to remind you of it later. Light starts from a source like the sun and the rays come out and they hit an object like this stand and then the light is reflected into my eye and that's why I see. Light starts here, bounces off things, ends up here and that's why I see. Now, that's actually a fairly, I say recent, about millennium and a half, that idea has been really, really accepted. Previous ideas were about light starting not only from a source like the sun or a lamp that you might put on a stand, somewhere obvious, but also the light that comes from within. And we hear this played out within our our vocabulary. We talk about somebody's eyes lighting up when they hear something they're passionate about. You can see it with, like, <laughs> this is brilliant. I want to be in there. I want to be working with children on this estate, and it's going to change their lives. Okay, those of you who know me well know that's something that gets me passionate. That's why I teach. But and you can talk about, you know, somebody's eyes go dim when they're not passionate. The eyes are often seen as a way of reflecting what's going on inside. 
If the body is healthy, the eyes will seem healthy. If the body is ill and full of darkness, then the eyes will seem dim. Actually, it's um, a Greek idea. Okay, it was around the time. The idea was that everyone was made from four elements, earth, fire, wind, and water. And Aphrodite put the fire inside people's eyes. We see this with cats. That's why we use cat's eyes on the road. They seem to reflect the light or seem to be their own source of light. Jesus here, talking to the crowds, is saying, you don't see because you are this wicked generation. Try and see if you can get this light inside you. Try and see if you can get rid of this darkness so that you'll be able to see more clearly. I want you to see more clearly. I want you to be able to see who I am. And it's important for us to, when we approach this next little section to realize that Jesus wants us to be able to see. Jesus wants us to know that he is Lord, that he is the Savior that's come. He's done these signs. And rather than people going, I want another sign, I need a new novelty, show me something fresh, show me something fresh, show me something fresh, Jesus goes, no. You look at it again. You look at it with clear eyes. The sign has already been given. I've given you sign after sign. I'm not giving you another sign just to entertain you. I want you to see what is before you properly. Look again. So, if the eyes are healthy, then the body is also probably healthy. Um, Yep, so this was, I had to put this in there. Like I said, this whole idea that you have light that comes from within you. This strength, if you found this picture, Graham, you know you'd put it in as well. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, that light is within you. Now, we're very lucky. We have a source of light within us now. Jesus came, Jesus died, so that the Holy Spirit could come and be our new testimony. I loved what you said earlier. We are non-stick. Okay? The darkness has no place inside us anymore. You want to bring light to the world, you bring it in your eyes, you bring it in your passion, you bring it as you are the lamp on a stand. Jesus was there, obvious in front of people. He was doing miracles. His disciples had already been given power. He gave them their Holy Spirit, and they went, they cast demons out of people, they preached the gospel. They're ready. This could be us. Don't hide under a bowl. Cultivate that light within you. And go for it. Yeah. So Jesus has been talking to the crowds. Jesus has encouraged the crowds. He said, look, I am here before you. And now, he's turning up the heat. Now, Jesus is really going on the offensive. Quite literally. Jesus finished speaking. A Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. That first statement doesn't mean much. Unless you put it with the next one. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not wash before the meal first. It's like me turning up at your house. You know, your house where you, the rule is you take your shoes off. And I just kind of waltz in, been through the mud, and just plonk myself on your sofa, put my shoes on the sofa. This is what Jesus had done. He was so offensive to these Pharisees. They've made the rules up. They've, they're very strict. You do the ceremonial washing. You get rid of all that external impurity before you sit down and have a meal with us. He's at their house. He's their guest at their meal. But yet he's not playing by their rules. 
So, Jesus notices that these Pharisees aren't very happy with him not washing his hands. He says, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. It feels like Jesus is already on his high horse and is about to start really hammering these guys with these woes. But I cut this here for a reason. Jesus gives the Pharisees an out. He gives them a way that they can be made clean. But notice, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. He hits the nail on the head. He says, do you know what? Where you are now is not good. The outsides of your cups, oh, they look all polished and sparkling and clean and you've done all this ceremonial washing. But inside you are full of wickedness and greed. Give to the poor. Now, I read something really interesting. The two items that he mentions that need to be cleaned are the cup and the bowl. What do the poor need? The poor need feeding. The poor need drink. If you empty out what's inside your bowl and your cup for the poor, then you'll be clean. (sighs) Heavy stuff. (laughs) So, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. So what was the wrong? What was so wrong with these Pharisees? Well, He puts three woes on them. Woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. What does this word woe mean? Does it mean completely and utterly judgment on you, shame on you? I saw a a car advert recently which um, shocked me to the core. It was actually pretty horrible. It was about um, a drunk driver, oh sorry, a a driver speeding, wasn't a drunk driver, driver speeding and plows through some children. At the end, three words, thick Irish accent, shame on you. And that completely undermined the tone of the entire advert. It's not like Jesus is going in here and going, shame on you because you don't do this. Shame on you, I'm so much better than you. Shame on you. Because if Jesus goes in there and goes, shame on you, I need to exalt myself above you in this way. He undermines his own servant kingship. He undermines his own point that you have to have the most respectful places and be elevated above everybody else even though he's entitled to be so. Jesus here says, woe. The woe is there. It's one of, this is, this is such a shame. Not shame on you, but this is such a shame that this is happening. You are supposed to be the leaders of this people. You are supposed to be their government officials. You are supposed to be the ones that point these people to God. You are supposed to be the sign. I've come 
to be the new sign, but you are supposed to be the sign that points people towards their God. So, it's all about the small details. The Pharisees were tithing all of their mint, the rue, all their herbs. Now, the law says, give a tithe of your grain, give a tithe of your first fruits. Actually, they made allowances for the nitpicking of making sure you've tithed every single correct leaf off all of your little bits of herbs and spices. This was what they were up to. They were up to this such small detail that they were losing sight of what really mattered. That God was a God of justice. God was a God of mercy. God was a God that was really interested in the poor. They were so busy with the small details that they lost sight of the bigger picture. What was the bigger picture? Looking after the poor. Jesus puts it there in verse 42. You neglect justice and the love of God. Now it says here the love of God. Now the love of God was shown through looking after the poor. Was shown through taking care of the sick and being a good sign to those around them. Now, notice that Jesus didn't say, oh, forget all this small stuff. It's very quick for us to say, oh, don't sweat the small stuff. Jesus goes, no, that small stuff matters. But you need to keep your eye on the big picture as well. You need to love the poor. You need to be there for them. Get back to that in a second. The second woe to the Pharisees was that they loved the place of the important seat. Um, I found this really challenging this morning as I came. This is the first time I've preached here. Um, Grace asked me and I took up the opportunity and I thought, actually, that'd be really, really good. I'd like to try that. But yeah, it's, what do you want? Why am I here? <laughs> am, I, am I casting a, a curse and a woe on myself by standing in front of you? This was a worry all morning, and I want to say thank you to those of you who have texted me and said, you know what, actually, you're going to be fine. I want to thank you for your prayers this morning. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was terrifying. But how do we... There are positions that are very public and in front of people. But if that's the only reason why people do that, is for the acknowledgement and for the the acclaim and for the polite nod and the, the, oh, you did really well after the service, then there's something wrong. This is why Jesus was having a go at the Pharisees. Do you know what you're doing? You're saying you're putting up this celebrity culture, essentially. Wave at us. Aren't we great? We get the best seats inside the marketplaces. Everybody nods and smiles at us and say, aren't you great? Jesus says, that's silly. You want the important seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. These two things together, the not looking after the big things, the poor, and the constant seeking out of the, all the acclaim and all, the, all of the praise of other people, leads Jesus to his third woe. He says, you're like unmarked graves that people walk over without knowing it. This is beautiful. This is so clever, the way that Luke puts together this passage. 
Jesus has come in, hasn't washed his hands, and has been accused of being ceremonially unclean by his, by his hosts. And yet, he goes through this argument. You don't look after the poor. You now want to have all the praise. People look at you as their example inside this society. They want to be like you. And when people follow your example, they are disobeying the will of God. By the way you act, you are causing other men, other women, other children to become sinful people. You are like unmarked graves. And he uses that phrase because unmarked graves were the places where people become contaminated with sin without their knowledge. To walk over a grave at this time was, was unclean. Dead bodies were unclean. Anyone who handled dead bodies had to make sure they were ceremonially washed. And Jesus says, you are like these unmarked graves. People walk past you. People act, try to be like you. And therefore they become contaminated. You mess them up. This is why it's such a shame. This is why it's such a woe. Not knowing where those graves are. People wander over them. Not even realizing that they are becoming contaminated. They're having all this sin stick to them. They can't access God. They can't see God in the clarity that they should be able to. Because of the Pharisees. Jesus is showing both care to the people in general and to the Pharisees themselves by highlighting this point to them. We'd be very keen, I suspect, to go outside and rather than addressing this sin and this nature, we could go outside and we could say, oh, isn't it a really bad job that, you know, Graham, I can't pick on Steve, he's not here. Isn't it a really bad job? That Steve, oh, sorry, that Graham does all these things and it makes, oh, it just makes me angry and it makes me not want to come to church or whatever. It stirs up my innards and I don't like what it's becoming. It could be so easy for us, for Jesus to go outside and to slander the Pharisees. But instead he addresses them head on. It's confrontational. Jesus, meek and mild in the manger is not really the one we see right now. Now, sitting at the sides have been these experts in the law. Some translation call them lawyers. That's a bit intense, isn't it? That's the kind of level that they knew the law, inside and out. So one of the experts says, hang on. I haven't put it here. One of the experts in the law answered him, he said, teacher, when you say these things to the Pharisees, you insult us also. Now, that's putting your head above the parapet, Really? Jesus just had a proper go at the Pharisees. The teachers of the law are now there. And Jesus reels, turns on them. One of the experts of the law said this. Now Jesus is there replying, And you, experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them, so you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you built their tombs. Because this, God in his wisdom said, I will send the prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets. 
that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Three woes for the Pharisees. Three woes for the experts in the law. We've looked at what the problems with the Pharisees were, that they were too nitpicking and they were too focused on the fine detail to see the larger picture, that they exalted themselves and therefore became a stumbling block to those around them. What does Jesus pick up on with the teach the law? Well, it's mostly one point. He says they burden people with so many laws and rules that people can't help themselves. And they don't help the people in the, uh, in the community either. They had so many rules to try and prevent the major transgressions. It wasn't done out of malice or spite often. These teachers of the law were there trying to make sure people didn't sin, that people didn't come, become ceremonially unclean. But it was so loaded on top of you and me. Anyone here ever had a heavy work day? When you think, I just, I, look, this doesn't work. Every time I get one piece of work done, I get another six on top of me. Snowed under with laws. The second point is quite, it's quite pretty. I like this. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was your ancestors that killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did because they killed the prophets and you build tombs for them. It's a um, thing called parallelism. It goes forward and then back on the same point. Now, if you've got this pointing, you expect that whatever's at the end of the point to be quite important. important. A quite important point. Yeah, It's quite important. What he says, you are approving of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets. They killed and persecuted those that came to point the way to God. The ones that came with a clear message, a signpost saying, this is what God wants. So, you're weighing people down. You're destroying and burying the clear signposts. And... Thirdly, it says you hide the keys to knowledge without allowing people to come in. Um, I was really, really happy to hear this about Thrive. It's about helping people get out of their box and actually access something that isn't theirs already. Allowing these young people to progress into something that they couldn't even see for themselves. Here are the keys. Step into the new world. Here are the keys. Step into something greater than you've ever seen before. Here are the keys. Step into something that's more than what you could ever imagine. But the uh, the experts in the law, not only are they halting people from getting into this greater world, they haven't even got in themselves. Um, Come back a second. Ever been here? I know I talked to TA earlier. I'm not going to pick on you any more than that. But ever been to a gig where the really tall guy stands in front of you? What's worse is if it was that really tall guy was stood there and had turned around. 
wasn't even interested in what was going on on the stage, wasn't even interested in what was going on in the gig, but instead his sole purpose pretty much was to stand there and be in the way. This is what Jesus is accusing the teacher of the law to be like. You're not even interested in going over there, and yet you stop others accessing it. What are you doing? This is a shame. This is not right. You are supposed to be the leaders of this people. You are supposed to be those that encourage this generation into something greater. Because of that, they get a lot of, a lot of woe, a lot of shame, really. Here's what it says. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. That's not a small deal. He then accents it. He goes from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, being an English speaker, this is quite nice. It kind of works really poetically in two ways. Firstly, it goes from all the way from A to Z. Z, sorry, Z. It goes all the way from A to Z. covers the entire alphabet. In Hebrew, or actually in the way that Jesus phrases this, it works even better. Abel was the first person murdered in the Bible by his brother Cain. In the Hebrew scriptures, the Masoretic texts, Zechariah is the final person that is killed. One of the prophets. All of them. Jesus underlined, you are responsible for all of this. It's being laid on you. It's not a small deal. You are supposed to be leaders of these people. You are supposed to help them see God clearer. Well, that's all right. It's not us. We're not the, we're not the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, right? No. Nah. You don't get away off that lightly. Anyone who's getting in the way of people seeing God gets this kind of woe from Jesus. They'll be held responsible for it all. Notice it doesn't say that you Pharisees and you teachers of the law will be held responsible. It's the whole generation. Jesus comes and really <laughs> delivers a massive smack across the face in this passage. There's a lot that's wrong, but I want you to see what's clear. That's what he says. I want you to have healthy eyes because you are filled with the healthy spirit that you know God well. I want you to notice that I am the greater light, greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah. There's something, I've missed this and I'll come back to it now. There's something very important about Jesus picking Solomon and Jonah. Jonah went to the Ninevites who were not Jewish. They were outsiders. And Solomon was come seen by the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, who was a foreigner and a woman. Okay. Now, in this world of responsibility and in this world of repute, those two groups of people would not be looked on kindly. This would be like saying in the next election, okay, Nigel Farage's votes would be counted only from immigrants from Somalia who are women. Now, I'm not, I, I tried to hold back from too much political input today. Okay? But it would be like that. It would be, they're going to be judged 
by those people that they deemed to be much lower than them, the outsiders, the women outsiders. He's saying, you know, you should be better than this. A sign that is greater is stood in front of you, yet your transgressions are so much worse that you can't see it. Here they are. You don't love the poor. You're dealing with all the nitty-gritty too much. He lays it out for them in such a way that they can't really ignore it. Well, they don't ignore it. Because Jesus goes outside, and instead of kind of taking what he says on board, they start to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Deflecting. They don't want to accept what Jesus said to them. Instead, they deflect more questions, more questions. Go on. If you slip up once, I mean, go, ah, I got you. Again, it's like our debates at the moment. The politicians trying to shoot arrows at one another. Go on, slip up. Go on, say something. Let me catch you. When you do, then I'll, you know, I'll haul you over the coals for it. Now, if they could catch Jesus doing something really wrong, then they'd get him, for, they'd get him killed for it. It wasn't about an election. But if they caught Jesus really off his game, he'd die for it. It's all very good having this and looking at it and going, right, well, that's the Pharisees and that's the teach the law and that's the people in the crowd at the time who just asking for another sign like a wicked generation. Um, I want to point something out, by the way. In the news sheet, or in the, today's, yeah, today's news sheet, it says uh, on the wickedness of his generation. I, those who are in the 20s and 30s, okay, you're not the wicked generation. You're not going to be taken outside and stoned. Okay. I, I'm, I would like to slightly change it to this generation. <laughs> okay, that includes all of you in here now especially youngins. Okay. But are they asking for more signs? There was somebody else that asked Jesus for a few signs in the book of Luke. He asked him for three. The first sign was he asked Jesus to feed himself. Let me see what I'm getting at here. He asked Jesus to throw himself off the top of a mountain and so that God would save him with his angels. And the third thing he asked him to do was to bow down and worship his Lord and so he could have all this kingdom for himself. It's fairly clear that keeping asking Jesus for signs when they're not needed is something that defines wickedness here. Satan asked Jesus for all these signs during his temptation. The people in the crowd are asking for a sign again. Now, I love the fact that we see healings. I love the fact that, you know, I hear stories of people being raised from the dead. I love the fact that, you know, people's lives get changed around. But if that's all we're really asking for is another sign, another sign, maybe we need to think about how we're looking. I'm going to wrap up now, but I've got three questions for you. Is there anything that Christ has already shown us that we need to look at again? Is there something that actually in the scriptures we're going, I, I can't really get hold of that very easily. Is it time for us to pray, God, would you open up my eyes a bit more and then help me see this? Secondly, is there any darkness within that actually is, uh, is hindering us from seeing clearly?
Is there something we're not happy to let go of? Is there something that we've done to somebody else? Is there something that somebody else has done to us, our pains or our hurts, that is making it very difficult to see clearly? And thirdly, particularly aimed at those who are leading anything, anyone, anytime. So that's all of us. Okay. Are there places where we are obscuring the view of others? Are there places where we are getting in the way? We had a moment a few years back where we were praying for the children in the church. And one of us had a picture that actually rather than standing in front of children and meeting out God, Catherine, you'll have to do for a minute, rather than having God over here and saying, oh, yeah, you're allowed this bit of God to look at and this bit of God to look at, stand up. Instead, what we said was like them having a cliff. How much do you trust me? Not that much. Okay, it was like having a cliff. Lean forward, lean forward, lean forward, lean forward. And hanging them out to look over to something that we can see. Thanks. Okay. Rather than meeting out, rather than hiding God from people, are we putting people in a position where they can see even more? If we want this community to grow, if we want God to be present here, maybe we should be doing that more.